Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for seeing the importance of gathering and hearing again once from the Lord's Word on this Lord's Day. We are going to be looking at Numbers chapter 11 in its entirety. That's 35 verses, which at first may sound a little daunting, but I assure you that it's not as much as it seems. It's certainly not as much as we've gone through in one setting um, through our walk in numbers thus far. And these 35 verses are really all kind of focusing on one main issue, and I think that'll help us get through it and navigate it a little more smoothly than you might assume at first. Let's go ahead and jump right into the text, and then we'll pray and look at it a little more closely. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. Book of number read, the book of Numbers reads, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat! We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. 
Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among who I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they shall eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were my were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, about, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatatava, because they were because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth, Hata'ava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and grateful for this opportunity to come and to read again from Your Word, to see what You would have for us to learn from it, to see how we are instructed to live as Christians, under Your rule and reign, submitting ourselves fully to You in humble obedience. Father, we see in this passage Your mercy. We see Your judgment, Your wrath, Your perfect justice. All of it, Lord, revealing Your character to us in one way or another. Father, we also see a glaring example of disobedience on behalf of Your people. And we see how You deal with them justly. 
And so, Lord, I pray tonight that we would look at this example and not let it wash over us and go in one ear and out the other and simply disregard it as history or something to be looked at, um, to, uh, to look at these people with pity or anything of that nature, but Lord, that we would recognize that we are capable of equal sin and commit equal sin, Lord, and uh, we desire not to commit that sin, and I pray that you would keep us from it. Help us tonight to recognize how we are to live in light of the calling that you've placed on our lives, to submit ourselves wholly unto you for your own glory. Help us to be equipped to live in such a way that glorifies you in all that we say and do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, referencing back to something that Clark said a few sermons ago, the honeymoon phase is over. Now, this text in Numbers 11 is uh, one that blindsides us as we've read through the narrative of this book thus far. Remember that the Hebrews themselves titled this book Into the Wilderness or In the Wilderness, referencing the sojourning that they're doing out of the captivity of Egypt and into the promised land with the Lord dwelling and leading them. And thus far through the first ten chapters, we've seen nothing but faithful obedience from the people. And we have no reason to suspect that anything would come up or change that. However, here we are, and just as abruptly as could be, we see the end of that obedience. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, we're immediately slapped in the face with this phrase, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And we know that this is sinful because it says, when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Now, grumbling, complaining, is not a sin that we talk about often. We don't look at it probably as much as we should. I think that it's a disposition that we often find ourselves having far too often in the workplace, in the church, serving in one capacity or another, or maybe not even serving, but not being served enough. In our own pride and selfishness, we are puffed up and we are subject to frequent complaining and grumbling. And this text tonight is going to be a great reminder for us that that is indeed a a grievous sin before the Lord, and God is not satisfied with a grumbling heart. What have the people to grumble for anyway, you might be asking yourself. We aren't told in the first three verses what they're complaining about other than some misfortune or another. It's an unidentified hardship. We can speculate, certainly, that the conditions wandering through the wilderness may may not be resort quality. However, the Lord was dwelling with them and He was leading them out of captivity through the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. They certainly had much to be grateful for. However, they complain for one reason or another. And I think the narrator, Moses here, is giving us this account in the first three verses 
as sort of a schematic, uh, a representative that this is what we read in verse 4 through 15 is not the first time this has happened in the wilderness. He gives us this brief view into an earlier instance of the disobedience and grumbling and complaining of the pe- upon, on behalf of the people. And we see in this account that the Lord, although righteously is upset with them, deals mercifully. He executes a merciful restraint in only consuming some of the outlying parts of the camp, as we read in verse 1. And the Lord does that to, again, be merciful. And that fiery judgment represents a refining effect that was intended there. We, we read all throughout Scripture the imagery of, of refining gold and silver and removing the sinful dross from our own Christian lives. And uh, I think we don't uh, need to miss that imagery here as well. But regardless, we see that the effect that it was intended to have on the Israelites in the wilderness was lost on them. They didn't listen. They cried out to Moses. Instead of crying out in complaint to the Lord, they turned to their mediator, their intercessor, the prophet Moses, who was there leading them. And they cry out to him, and Moses intercedes on their behalf, and the Lord is appeased, and the fire dies down. His, his wrath subsides, and they're spared. He only consumes the outlying parts of the camp, which, as we've already seen, that periphery of the camp is tainted with sin and uncleanness. We've, we've seen throughout Numbers thus far where those that are unclean from a discharge or having contacted a Uh, come in contact with a dead body or put into the outside of the camp due to their uncleanness. So the Lord burns that up and then he stops once Moses intercedes. Certainly he would have been perfectly just to wipe all of the camp out at that time, but he didn't. He is long-suffering. Which leads us to verses 4 through 15, which is the crux of the issue here tonight. This is the more current in in our text, the more current account, where we read about the people, starting with these people called the rabble. The rabble and the people of Israel complaining about the lack of meat. Now, who are the rabble? The rabble are non-native People, well, not non-Israelite people. They are people that chose to leave Egypt with the Israelites. And specifically, these are those that have not yet converted to Judaism. They have not accepted Yahweh as their sovereign Lord, but are still sojourning with the Israelite people in the camp. So these are unbelieving, sinful people. And what we see here is that the rabble, while are, they seem to be the origin of the complaining amongst the people, they certainly are not the final destination. It spreads like wildfire throughout the camp. And this is a good reminder for us, a warning to us, that sin is never isolated. Sin is never a singularly personal problem. It ruins everything. Sin is contagious. We've seen that uh, 
we can look out in our world and see the effects of sin on this world. And we see it within churches, within families. Sin corrupts everything that it comes in contact with. And it spreads rapidly. We need to guard our hearts within the church so we don't fall prey to it. We're not above this. We're not better than the Israelites or immune from it. The sin, what's the nature of its spreading? It's spreading upstream. It goes from the unsanctified, unsaved, unbelieving sinners within the camp, and it works its way up to those that are the chosen people of God, that have consecrated themselves before the Lord. Those that are faithfully walking in the first ten chapters with Him, obeying every word of His command. But we see that sin is swimming upstream and affecting and plaguing the camp. Instead of the Israelites being a faithful example to those unbelieving in the camp around them, they are instead taking cues on from those that don't know God. This is the exact opposite, the inverse that we are commanded in Scripture, especially us as the church today. Like the chosen people of Israel, we are supposed to be that shining city on a hill. We are supposed to live wholly devoted to God, to Christ, and serve as an example for those around us in how we are to live. Yet, far too often, we likewise fall prey to getting down in the muck and mire of the world and letting it rule our lives and control our thoughts and therefore our actions as, by extension. We see more warnings about mixing with unbelievers in the New Testament for this very reason. Uh, I don't mean to imply that we should become some, you know, monk. We, we shouldn't become monks and nuns and completely remove ourselves from the world. We are called to live within the world. But there are specific parameters and commands for how we are to do that just rightly. We are to share the gospel. We are not to be yoked with unbelievers, but share the gospel with them. Be faithful witnesses in the world. Not live like the world, but live in it nonetheless. So the catalyst, being those unbelieving people, uh, they have spread this doubt this sinful grumbling into the people of Israel, and they've caught the disease and complained greatly as well. We read in 2 Timothy 2, verses 15 through 17, where it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So that irreverent babble there is, of course, you know, a misinterpretation of Scripture. It's, it's the, a false gospel. It's, it's lies about God. And that's exactly what Israel has fallen prey to. Um, the sin that has spread like gangrene within the camp is that sin of grumbling and complaining about the Lord's good provision. And again, what is their complaint? Their complaint, uh, here we get a little better picture of than we did in the first three verses from that first account. The complaint is that, um, and I'll say this about it, 
although we're given a picture of it, that does not mean that it is a just complaint. It doesn't mean that it's permissible or well-founded. We're going to see quite the opposite here. Um, it really, we're given a picture of it, and that kind of makes it worse than the first account. We see just how ridiculous it is. They say, oh, that we had meat to eat. You can almost hear the whining tone in that. Let's stop here for a minute. The people are complaining about not having meat to eat. Their complaint isn't that they're hungry. Their complaint isn't that God has taken them out into the wilderness and stranded them without any provisions. Mm -mm. Their complaint is that God's provision is somehow insufficient. And really, that's not even their complaint. Their complaint is that they don't want what God has provided. They've grown tired of it. Their complaint is utterly sinful. Listen to the folly of their thinking as we go on in in verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. The Israelites are romanticizing the past. They're looking back longingly as if they were Lot's wife. That's what sin does, isn't it? It causes us to look at this depraved world through rose-colored glasses. It plays tricks on our minds. It impedes our memories. Think about how crazy it is, this complaint. The Israelites are marching freely with God, with their sovereign covenant Lord, through the wilderness on the way to the land that He has promised the people. They've been delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt by their loving Heavenly Father. They have all their need, even in the harsh wilderness, God is miraculously providing food for them, sustenance. And yet... They complain and wish that they were back, for some reason, in captivity. Their thought process is completely illogical. They dream of the days when they had free meat and all manner of other food, except they never had any of that. Their food was never free. They were in bondage. They were serving Pharaoh in Egypt and being fed so that they could continue serving in this complete Um, totalitarian bondage they were under. Folks, sin and Satan promise so much. They cause us to see mirages. In sin, we look out across the desert and we see an oasis in the distance. We chase after that oasis. We go, we see a land of plenty on the horizon. Yet, when we arrive at our destination, we realize that we've made a grave error. The promises were empty. Instead of joy and happiness and providence and plenty, we have arrived to find poverty, guilt, hardships, a life dishonoring to the Lord. Sin deceives us into thinking that the world is superior to God's good plans and blessings. Sin makes us long for that life where we weren't under the constraining burdens of the commands of Scripture. 
Sin makes us look back and think, oh, how good it was when I was living for myself, doing whatever my flesh pleased, not remembering how sin-ridden and costly that life is. Not remembering, not looking out in the present at those in the lost and dying world that have not yet been saved by God's grace and looking at the destruction of their lifestyles. We're reminded of this in verses 7-9. through We kind of snack back to reality. The narrator here uh, doesn't get let the Israelites get away with this complaining because we get a description of the manna, an accurate one. Not that like the, the Israelites were complaining of. In their complaining, they made it out to be something less than appetizing. However, this divinely inspired narrator here doesn't let them get away with it. The manna described in verses 7-9, through nine, it has an appealing appearance. It has a variety of ways to be prepared. It has an appetizing taste. The CSB puts verse 8, the end of verse 8, as saying that the taste was like a pastry cooked with the finest oil, like a sweet cake. So there was a variety of ways to prepare it. There was nothing to get bored of. It was, in fact, appetizing. And the look of it was like coriander seed and that of delium. And we aren't really... The, the nature of delium here is a little vague. However, some uh, consider it to be like a jewel. And so it, it was, in fact, the opposite of what the Israelites were complaining of. Nonetheless, sin has tainted their perspective. The Israelite people have had their own case blown to smithereens here in these verses. It's been completely thrashed and they have no basis to complain we have revealed to us here. And um, I regret to inform you that if you notice... It's not just the, the lay people of Israel within the camp. It's not just the rabble, the unbelievers. Moses himself even sins and falls prey to this temptation to grumble, beginning in verse 10. As a result of the grumblings of the Israelites, Moses himself goes to the Lord to complain about his own predicament. He wants to ask God why he has to be the one responsible for these people. Lord, why have you put me in this position? He goes to, before the Lord with this, his rhetorical questions in verses 11 through 15. He's wanting to know what he's done to deserve this poor lot that he's been given. And much like the people who Moses is given authority over, his own complaining we see is sinful and skewed. He goes as far as as to ask for his own death. It's, um, it's been speculated, and I won't say much on this because I don't have much conviction about the matter, but it's been speculated that Moses um, is dealing with almost a sort of depression here. He's looking at the situation, and he's, he's in a woe-is-me state. You know, he's, he's wishing for, that the Lord would strike him down. Kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, he says. Of course, it's utter foolishness. Thankfully, although Moses um, grew tired and weary of the 
complaining of the people that he was over, we have a better intercessor and prophet in Christ Jesus. Jesus is always interceding on our behalf. He never grows tired of it. He bore the wrath that we deserved in our grumbling and unbelief. And He intercedes on our behalf even still when we transgress against Him. Be it in thought life, in attitude, in outright rebellion. Let's go on now to verse 16. We're going to look at this section. We're going to see here how the Lord responds to the people's disobedience this go-round. Will He be less merciful than before? Will He consume them all in His fiery wrath? Well, not exactly. In fact, He gives the people exactly what He asks for. Although I'll be careful to warn you, be careful what you wish for. It reminds me of Romans 1 where we are turned over those that desire to fulfill the passions of their flesh and chase after the things of this world where the Lord will turn them over in His timing to a reprobate mind to where they will never desire the things of the Lord. I caution you all against this vain thinking and um, inferior thought um, that is present when we have sin ruling our minds. So in verse 16, the Lord begins His response to Moses. He's actually merciful and accommodating to Moses here. Moses is burdened by the overwhelming responsibility as we read. Did I conceive all these people, he says in verse 12? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? And he says in verse 13, Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. He's really burdened. And um, I need to remind you here, we'll look at it again in a moment where Moses is kind of reminding the Lord of this situation. The estimate of the number of the people in the camp is roughly 2 million. So there might be some some genuine concern in in Moses' flesh, right? Um, He's got a moment of doubt where he's not trusting the Lord enough here. But certainly, we can see from his point of view, um, he's got a daunting task ahead of him when he's got this constant nagging from 2,000 seemingly hungry people. Discontent at the very least. And so, we see that while he's burdened by the overwhelming responsibility of not only being that spiritual leader, but also having to be this physical provider. The people are coming to him looking for this meat. Um, Moses is incapable, of course, of doing those things without God's provision. And um, as we have seen time and time again, the Lord provides. He instructs Moses here to gather 70 men that would receive the same power of the Holy Spirit that he himself possessed, that is Moses, And these men would lead alongside him to alleviate some of that burden. That's a great mercy. And as you can imagine, there's certainly some kind of relief that Moses feels when he gets this news. Uh, And so that same mercy is not given, though, to the people of Israel. 
God, as we'll see, deals with them justly. And he's perfectly within his rights to do that. God is able to show mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he does that here. This is a great example. And so, in verses 18 through 20, we see that the Lord is going to give them exactly what they asked for. In fact, they're going to get more meat than they could have ever imagined. More than they could have ever wanted, we'll see soon. In verse 20, God says that they will eat of the meat until it becomes loathsome to them. Until they hate it. And why is he doing this? Well, the meat is not really the issue. He's not concerned with their grumbling and complaining uh, to the extent that we might think. He's actually, as we read in verse 20, addressing the issue that is the heart of this matter, the heart of this grumbling, at the heart of this grumbling, where it says, after he says, and becomes loathsome to you, he says, because you, that is the people, have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? God is executing judgment here on a people that have rejected him. When we see this, we are immediately reminded that this is, in fact, a great problem of sin. When we hear grumbling, that may not be the first thought, but when we realize that that grumbling is a rejection of the Lord, we understand it more accurately. Friends, when we reject God's good plans, purposes, and provisions, we are simply chasing after death. I want to remind you of how Paul reminded the people of in Rome, in Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 15 through 18, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, and a quick aside, that by no means is a strong negation of that um, rhetorical question. In other words, God forbid that we should go on sinning because we're no longer under the law but under grace. He says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." We're either slaves of sin, we either serve sin, serve our flesh, serve Satan, serve this world, or we serve Christ. We serve God Almighty. The people in Israel, and too many today, choose to look back and serve sin, to serve in Egypt. They long for that day where they were self-serving. Choose Christ. He died to satisfy the wrath that we deserve to bear for our own sins. Therefore, we are to choose Him, to choose to serve Him, serve Him through whose death Christ has used to make us alive. We are viewed in Christ as righteous 
because of his perfect life and our worship to him for that act is to be an obedient, consecrated life. Back to the Israelites, though, for a moment. Moses, although God has just told him of his plans to revive these elders to ease his burden, is still struggling a little bit. We see here a great intimacy in the relationship between God and Moses, where he's not exactly lacking faith or doubting God outright, but there's a certain candidness in his dialogue with God. It's really interesting the way that we, it reads here in the text. Uh, we're talking again about roughly two million people. So God, uh, Moses, in verse 21, he says, "The people who I am, who uh, excuse me, the people among whom I am am number six hundred thousand on foot. That is those that have been um, designated for the armed service within the camp. And so you look at six hundred thousand." that can serve in the army, and you, we can deduce that roughly two million people were in the camp altogether. Of course, God doesn't need this reminder. And he goes on in verse 23 to remind Moses of that. He uses a Hebrew idiom to remind him that he isn't capable. He says here, the, the idiom, is the Lord's hand shortened, or uh, the Lord's arm, hand referring to his arm, is it shortened to where he can't feed all of these, these people, to where he cannot act in this miraculous way? Of course, we know that God is able to provide. We see accounts in the New Testament also where, where Jesus provides and feeds a great multitude. Of course, that service, uh, those accounts in the New Testament, are God being gracious to those people, yet here this provision is serving as a judgment upon the people, as we'll see. And this, this reminder, of course, strengthens the faith of Moses, and we're grateful for that. After that intimate dialogue between Moses and Yahweh, Moses proceeds to obey and gathers those men that would be his co-laborers in leading and serving this mass of people. These men then prophesied temporarily to establish their credentials. Um, we see that in verse 25, but they didn't continue doing it. It was just enough time so that they could establish that they have the Spirit of God upon them and that they can serve alongside Moses. Again, this is a merciful act of God in establishing these people to help and serve alongside Moses. Two of these men, though, we read about Eldad and Medad, did not for whatever reason um, come and meet with the, others, uh, the other of the 70 uh, at the tent. And instead, they were still given the Spirit of God, but they were prophesying out within the camp amongst the people. And so Joshua, what we see in verses 27 and 28, uh, a faithful servant and the right-hand man of Moses, he was concerned about this. He feared that this demonstration of spirit-empowered gifting would cause the people to all the more rebel against Moses. Remember, they, he's, Moses has just gone before the Lord saying, listen, these people, they're, they're beating down my door, they're nagging me, wanting to know where, uh, where the meat is, wanting me to provide meat, 
And so they're already kind of stirred up in anger and uh, resentment, a little hostility against Moses as leader. And so Joshua, perhaps with a, with a good heart, is worried for Moses' sake that once these people are seen to have the same power as Moses in this temporary time of prophesying, they will uh, instead turn and try to make them leader and all the more stir up a coup against Moses. Moses, though, as we see in verse 29, was not concerned. He did not view this as a personal threat to his position. Instead, he longed for all of God's people to be filled with the gifts of the Spirit. This is not unlike, as we read this morning, the heart of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, where Paul himself was not concerned with those that were preaching the Gospel with false and selfish and evil, perhaps, motives, but rather he was just grateful that the Gospel was being preached at all. And again, so Joshua, having a good heart, being concerned for Moses, uh, wasn't sinning in this way, but Moses' heart posture was correct in that, um, and that, despite his recent sin and grumbling before the Lord, uh, is evidence that he still was a faithful, faithful servant of God. Now after this account, we see verses, in verses 31 through 35, the execution of God's judgment upon those that complained of the manna, those that rejected God, uh, those that had longed for the meat. We get a miraculous picture of God's power as well in this. That shouldn't be missed. The Lord draws from a day's journey on one side and the other all around the camp these great, this great mass of quail, meat, for the people of Israel here. They had complained about meat, not having it, and now they have it in abundance. Certainly, of course, the God that created the universe by the very word of His power is able to orchestrate it for such divine purposes. This actually reminds me again of uh, this morning's sermon. Uh, For the believer, of course, God uses the evil schemes of man to work for good for those that He has chosen. But for the unbelieving and rebellious, he uses them to execute perfect judgment according to his will and timing. And that's what we see executed in these final verses. God uses his power to provide a staggering number of quail. There are those that suggest that the birds piled as high as three feet on top of the ground. Those that collected the least amount of quail in the the following days collected ten homers, which in modern equivalency is more than enough to fill a pair of 55-gallon drums. And that's the least anyone collected. The people did not get to enjoy it, though. In his judgment, we read that the Lord struck them down, using this powerful language, while the meat was yet between their teeth. God struck them down before they were even able to taste it, to satisfy the craving that had caused them to reject Him. And a reminder here can be made that sin never delivers on its promises. Of course, we see the, the name, this place where this divine judgment um, occurs is actually named uh, 
using the Hebrew, where it, which means grave of craving. All the people that suffered and died um, in that act of justice were buried there under the name grave of craving. Some striking language. And so, what does all this mean for us? It's great to look back on this and see um, how we are not to live, and that's certainly one application. Uh, And that's kind of what I want to encourage you all, not to be, as I'm prone to being myself, grumbling, murmuring unbelievers. Don't impose on the grace of God as we read in Romans. We have a better mediator than Moses, and praise God for that. Hebrews talks at great length about Christ's supremacy, and it even mentions how Christ is superior to Moses himself. He's long-suffering. He pleads on our behalf and bears the wrath that we deserve for our constant sin and shortcomings. Yet, this does not give us an opportunity to continue in sin, but instead, it is the very means by which we are freed from it. Don't believe the lie that the old bondage is somehow better. It promises so much, yet only delivers death. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? As we look back on this text tonight, I want you to think about what the German philosopher George Hegel said, uh, except this, this quote is true for the exception of maybe Karen, that the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Israel had learned, as we saw in this chapter, nothing from its history. They didn't recognize God's mercy in not consuming them from their past grumblings. They continued in their sin, and therefore justice was their fate. Praise God, in Christ, we don't need to fear God's wrath. Yet, if we suppose that because we are covered by the blood of Jesus and are able, therefore, to continue on in unrepentant sin, then I can tell you with great certainty that Christ's blood does not, in fact, cover you. It will be true of you as it was for, of those who frivolously chose not to observe the Passover in Numbers 9, where the Lord said to them that they shall bear their sin. The glorious nature of the Gospel, though, of course, is that we do not have to bear our sin. If we repent and believe in Christ Jesus, then we do not need to fear the repercussions of our stumbling and unbelieving grumbling. What's more, we don't have to continue on in those sins. We will in our flesh fall back into them uh, from time to time, but we have been freed from the heavy weight of that sin and guilt, from that bondage, and we can serve God under the easy yoke and light burden of Christ our Savior, our perfect prophet and mediator. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. We are so grateful for the reminders of how we are to live 